With that in mind, what I'm going to do today is I am going to start all the way back in the book of Genesis. In chapter 3, if you're familiar with this, this is where Adam and Eve fell into sin and there's a conversation that takes place. Uh, And I am going to began at verse 8 in chapter 3. And they heard, this is Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, "Uh, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat. And the man said, The the woman whom thou gavest uh, to me uh, to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Notice the kind of blame shifting that's trying to take place there. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent, serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And this is the point I want to make. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That has everything to do with what we are going to be looking at today in the book of Revelation. Chapter 11, we have to wrap up, and then we're going to move on into chapter uh, number 12. And it's in 12 that we will see why Genesis chapter 3 has everything to do with this text. We are at uh, verse 14. We'll just read this, and then we'll reach through the rest of chapter 11, and then we'll get to 12. We will read that. Then the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And the seventh angel sounded, and there arose loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks or give thee thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who art and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and hast begun to reign. Then the nations were enraged, and thy wrath came, and the time came from the, for the dead to be judged, and the time to give their reward to the bondservants, the prophets, 
and to the saints and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark uh, of his covenant appeared uh, in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. So what was the second woe? Well, all the things that we read in chapter 11 before we came to this particular verse. But there is yet a third woe coming. The seventh trumpet sounds. So this is the last trumpet out of those seven. We studied all of the other six up to this point. So now we're to the seventh trumpet. And so the seventh trumpet sounds. And there, is a loud, there are loud voices in heaven saying. In other words, what we're seeing here, guys, is this. Is as things unfold on earth. And the heavenly hosts are witnesses to all of it. That there is rejoicing in heaven. And there is worship of God. We've seen this pattern over and over again as we've gone through the book of Revelation, in particular all the way back in chapter 4 and chapter 5. What are they rejoicing over? They're rejoicing over the fact that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Does that not sound like what we understand to be the the end of time? Which should not surprise us. Because we have taken the approach that this book is not just a picture of these things through history unfolding one another in a row. That it's better represented as seven visions that that cover basically the same time frame in history, but at the same time they emphasize different aspects of it. It should not surprise us that when the seventh trumpet sounds, that it sounds very much like the day of judgment has taken place and Christ Jesus has established his kingdom here in the world. That's exactly how the Olivet Discourse ends. When Jesus addresses these things. It's Christ and he will reign forever and ever. It is not a temporary kingdom. It is not one that comes and goes. But the kingdom is eternal. Now it surprises me. It still surprises me. How many people in churches today believe that we are going to spend all of eternity in heaven. That when we die, we go to be with the Lord and heaven, our spirit does, and eventually there'll be a resurrection. But people have this idea ingrained in their mind. I don't know where it even comes from because it is not scriptural. That the eternal kingdom of Christ will be established here on the world, that the world is our home. And let me tell you, if we're living on the day that Jesus comes and we know him as Lord and Savior, we won't ever go, go to heaven. 
We die before then. Our, our, our spirit goes to be with him in heaven, and our body remains here in the dust of the ground. And then when he comes b- back, when he, he comes again, he's going to bring all of those souls with him. And their bodies will be resurrected. And we will live here. He will establish. He will renew paradise. The paradise that was lost in Eden. He will establish in the world globally. And it will be our eternal home. Just read the words of Jesus. This is what Jesus basically says in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. That when this happens, what goes on? Well, the 24 elders, as we've seen before, what do they do? They fall down before the God who is sitting on the throne. And what do they do? They worship him. Because of what he has done now in this world. Giving thanks to him. Christ Jesus, who is God, King of this world. Now, there wasn't rejoicing going on everywhere. The nations were enraged. We've seen this. Remember the two witnesses who died earlier on, who, who had come and they testified to Christ in the world and, and they had died. And the world rejoiced because they were murdered. The two witnesses of God, the, the unsaved world was rejoicing and at this until three and a half days had passed and then God breathed life back into them. They, they rose from the dead and they were lifted up into heaven. Notice here that uh, it says thy wrath came. I want to make something really clear this morning. I've heard some people with some rumblings, people saying Keith doesn't believe in the rapture. I have never said that from this pulpit. Not one time have I said that. What I've said over and over again is I do not believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Because I don't think it is biblical. I don't find any evidence for it to happen in the Bible at all. That there will be a great tribulation. And this comes from the Olivet Discourse. The worst of Jesus that come, this, this severe period of persecution that takes place before his second coming. And we've talked about this, this whole idea of a pre-tribulation, a a rapture that takes place for that tribulation. It does not appear anywhere in the Olivet Discourse, the very words of Jesus talking about these things. It's not there at all. So I think a better way of looking at things is the Great Tribulation is a period of severe persecution that falls on the earth. 
And, and believers are there, by the way, because Jesus says right there that if not for the sake of the elect, it would have gone on longer. Well, what does that tell you? It tells you that his people are there in the world going through this tribulation with everyone else. He basically tells them to run for the hills. Who is he talking about? He's talking to his people who are in the world at that time. There is a rapture coming, and this is what you find described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And by the way, in his epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul talks very early on in chapter 1 about he will save us from what? Not from the great tribulation. He will save us from the wrath to come. We understand this, that at the second advent of Christ, two things are going to happen. His people are going to be gathered to him. People that are living in the world. It's very clear in the Olivet Discourse that there are believers living in the world at that time. And he will send forth his angels and they will gather them from the four corners of the earth. A rapture. But notice here, it doesn't come before the, the great tribulation. And let me tell you, there is no evidence in scripture as far as I can discern, and I've studied a great deal, that would make me conclude that that's going to happen. And there are a lot of people in the church today who believe it because they've been taught very much for the last couple of hundred years. But history, Christian history, attests to the fact that no one even thought about it until 200 years ago. That every believer, as far as we know, up to that point, believed what I just told you. But all of these things are going to happen at the second coming of Christ. Two things. The people of God are going to be, well, actually three things. The people of God are going to be lifted out of here so that they don't experience God's wrath of judgment that's going to fall on everybody else. We talked about this a little bit last week, and I think it's very obvious to us that, that, that he's, he takes us out of the world for a lot of reasons, and one of those is to protect us from this wrath that's going to fall. In other words, there'll be bold, don't, don't confuse the great tribulation with God's wrath that comes in judgment at the very end of time. It's not the same thing. Both of those things are individually in the Olivet Discourse. The words of Jesus, don't confuse those two things. They're not the same event. They're not the same thing. Verse 18 makes it very clear. The judgment will fall on some, but at the same time, others will be rewarded at that time. And who are those who are going to be rewarded? The bondservants of the prophets and the saints and those who fear thy name. The small and the great. 
In other words, there's two primary things going to happen on the day of judgment. One of those is this, is God's judgment. His wrath is going to fall upon everyone who's unsealed, everyone who is an unbeliever. But at the same time, it will be a day of reward for those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You know, we're told by Paul in a couple of places that we're going to all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You need to understand that as far as believers go, that's not an issue of whether you're saved or not saved. What we're going to be judged on is what have we done with the good life that Jesus has given to us? Have we used it for his greatness and for his glory? Or have we used it for our own greatness and our own glory? Have we lived the gospel out for him in our life in a manner that he would be honored and glorified and that others would be drawn to give worship to him? Or have we wasted a lot of the grace that God has given to us? Uh, There's a reason for us to understand this, and that is that heaven... It's not going to be exactly the same thing for everybody. I mean, it's going to be wonderful and great and unbelievable and all that other kind of stuff. But it doesn't mean that every one of us is going to, going to, going to experience to the fullness that absolutely everybody else does either. Does that kind of make sense? Well, you think about the the parable of the ten minus in Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus is talking about this stuff. Three different people, and he gives a different measure to each one of them, and two of them use it to his glory and whatever, and the other one doesn't. You understand? That has to do with reward. That's what Jesus is talking about there. Verse 19, and the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of, we found the ark of the covenant. It's been in heaven all the time. People have been wondering where it is. You know, the Ethiopians claim that they have it hidden away somewhere, and, but they won't show it to anybody. They won't let anybody see it. You know, that kind of thing. It's been one of the great mysteries of the Bible is whatever happened to the ark of the covenant, where did it go to? What became of it? Is it still out there somewhere? Is Indiana Jones going to find it somewhere? But, you know, I've always wondered about it. You know, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Well, I read something this week that may, maybe makes sense out of it, and that is this. We understand that when the, the uh, Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in the temple in 586 B.C., we we're told that the temple they burned down. Now, when we think about the temple, we think about stone and gold and things like that, which don't burn. But there was a lot of wood in the temple. And let me just say this this morning, and that is, the Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box that was covered with gold. And and and, and there's a possibility that it just burned, burned when that took place. And maybe that answers the question of where is the Ark. Of the covenant. 
But if you think about the temple and the tabernacle, you remember the Ark of the Covenant was the most central, the most holy, most important article in all of the place of worship. And the reason was it was the place where God dwelt among men on earth. Remember the mercy seat that sat on top of that Ark of the Testimony or the Covenant? If you read in Exodus, when God gives the plans to Moses for all these different articles, it says there that he showed Moses. In other words, it wasn't just that he gave him the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant. He gave Moses some kind of a vision so he could actually visualize, see what it looks like. And not only that, we know that all of these things were replicas of things that existed in the, throne, in the heavenly throne room of God that we've already studied. Remember, the Ark of Incense has been mentioned a number of times. It's the only time the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned. So why is it important? Why does it surface here at this point? I would say it's because of this. Is because what the history of the world has shown at this point is people left to themselves apart from Christ and the grace that comes through Christ Jesus. They are covenant breakers to the hilt. But at the same time, God is the covenant keeper. He has kept every promise that he has ever made. He will never fail to do that. And this is part of the celebration that's going on in heaven. It's because we understand that these heavenly hosts, they've seen history unfold, the history of mankind in, uh, in, in, in every detail and all of that. And they're rejoicing here now because they see the fruition of all of it. And that God, in the end, shows himself to be the one who keeps the covenant. He keeps his promise. And what message should that be for you and for me? God is not a promise breaker. He has never broken one promise. He never will break a promise. He will keep every promise and every detail that he's made to you, period. No question. Well, let me ask you something. How good are you at covenant keeping? I mean, even where, you're, where you are now, you may have been a Christian for 40 or 50 or 60 or maybe 70 years, some of you. Maybe 80 years, some of you. How good have you been at keeping all the things, all the promises you've made to God over these years? All those times you committed yourself to to, to more detailed Bible study. How many times you've, you, you've, you, you've, you've convinced yourself that you needed to pray more, and, but you didn't do it? And how many times have we broken covenant with God? And it's true for every one of us. What about sharing the gospel with other people? I mean, have you always been faithful in doing that? Have you gone out of your way to do that? 
The truth is we have to have a covenant keeper, and it's not me, and it's not you. Do you understand our salvation depends on a promise keeper who does not break his promises ever? I don't know about you, but without that, I have no hope. If it's up to me, I won't make it. If it's up to me, I can't make it. He's got to do it. It's fundamental. He's got to do all of it. Not that he does 99%, now you have to do 1%. That's true, no one in this room is going to make it. He's got to do it all. He's promised he would. And we can have every confidence that he will. Because he is the covenant keeper. Well, not only that... Just remember that now the world at this point has become the kingdom of Jesus. He is here. His kingdom is established eternally. Covenant. It always will be. Eternally. But notice the Ark of the Covenant appeared in the temple and then there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and earthquake and great hailstorm. God's wrath on the unbelieving. That's the end of the seven trumpets. Chapter 12 begins the new vision. A vision that will now cover basically a lot of the same things. When we go through here, you're going to think, gosh, it seems like we've been over this ground before. Not once, not twice, maybe three or four times at this point. And the reason for that is we have. But just remember, each one of these visions, they have unity with one another, but at the same time, there is distinction made in each one of them. So let's open up chapter 12. We're not going to get very far with this, I can tell. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with a sun and moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor uh, and uh, in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. 
and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, and they threw them and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Uh, and she gave birth to a son, a male son, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Notice that. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. Two signs. The first one is a great sign. The second one is just a sign. If we read this, if you read this, what are you thinking? You're thinking it sounds like maybe the birth of Christ. Sounds like maybe the woman that's described here is Mary. And we all know who the red dragon is. He's actually described in the same chapter a little bit later on as the serpent. So why did we read chapter 3 in Genesis this morning? Because what we're seeing here is the continuation of the battle that's been going on against the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent from the very beginning of the roots of the history of mankind. It is coming to a culmination here. A lot of what we've studied, guys, in this book of Revelation is persecution of the church. Who's doing that? The seed of the serpent. Over and over and over again. You see, he hasn't been, the evil one has not been that key figure in the the picture of Revelation up to this point. But as we get deeper on, he's becoming more and more prominent. He's been there all along. We understand that, that he was given the key to the abyss. Remember that? And he he was the one that, you know, opened up the, the gate and let all the demonic spirits enter into the world and torment people. We understand this, that we disagree with Roman Catholicism for a lot of reasons, but one of those is Mariology. There's a sense in which Roman Catholicism, as it is today, is deified Mary. And I would imagine that this is one of the passages that they use kind of for the foundation of doing so. Just remember... That, that, that Revelation is a book full of signs and symbols. Lampstands that represent churches. All kinds of signs and symbols all over the place. And sometimes we're told exactly what they represent and other times we're not. But see, what I would say is this. is This is symbolic probably of the birth of Jesus. 
we can't read this without having some sense of the root of it at least being in that. Right? Especially if you read on through the rest of the chapter. But we understand this. That Mary birthed Jesus, and by doing that, in a sense, she also birthed the church. There's a sense in which she's the mother of Jesus, and therefore, because she's the mother of Jesus, she's also, in a sense, the mother of the church. Not a deity, but a woman, a a real, live, human woman. It was given very special honor, and she honored and glorified God in the Magnificat that we have recorded in the Gospels for us of her rejoicing in God's goodness and blessing to her. Now, it's hard to imagine a woman that's clothed with the sun and at the same time is standing on the moon. Does that even make a whole lot of sense to you? Can we even imagine something like that? But again, remember, this book is full of signs and symbols. That There are a lot of things in here that are meant to be taken literally, but there are a lot of things that are not meant to be taken literally. She has on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, we talked about 12. You know, we find it in the book of Revelation a number of times, and, and, and sometimes it's very clearly relating to the 12 tribes of Israel. Sometimes 12 is relating to the 12 apostles. Sometimes you have 24, which is 12 plus 12, Right? She was with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. We just went through this with Caroline and it's just. Well, Nancy said this morning in Sunday school, because we were having this very conversation yesterday, and that is Brian was talking about women birthing children and how he can't even imagine what they go through to do that. And I said the same thing to Caroline last week. I don't have a clue what you're going through. I can't get where you're at. I've never experienced it. I never will experience what it means to birth a child. And we know that's part of the curse, right? We read that in in Genesis chapter 3. That the pain in childbearing will increase. It's got to hurt unbelievably. And then you see, you see it happen, and then you wonder why a woman that's been through it one time will opt to have any more children. <laughs> as much as a blessing as maybe they are to her, can you imagine wanting, and some women want desperately to have more children after they've been through all of that once? It's not just the delivery. It's all the, all the nine months of the stuff that they go through. You women are tough cookies. You are. 
You amaze us men because we couldn't. Let me tell you, if it was under the guise, there would probably not be many people in the world. Because when it comes right down to it, we're wimps. Because you do that intentionally, and we would probably never intentionally do something like that to ourselves. She was with child. Well, it was hard to sit and watch Caroline last week because her labor went on for a long time. They induced it. So I don't remember how many hours it was, but it was a long time. And we were sitting there in the room, and you know, they had all these monitors on her, and they had uh, they had an internal monitor that was on the baby, and you know, so they could keep track of the baby's pulse and all that other stuff. But there was one of those that had to do with the contractions, and we would sit there in that room and. You know, it would be flatlining, and Caroline would be talking with us and almost laughing sometimes, and then you could see it start to creep up. And the expression on her face began to change, and the tears started coming. And then finally it would peak out and come back down again. I don't want to stretch it too far, but I don't think we very often really give due consideration to the pain it costs God the Father, to the pain it costs God the Son, to the pain it costs God the Holy Spirit to birth us, to save us. To birth the church. I heard someone say this one time, and I used to agree with it as I get older, I'm not sure I do anymore. He said this He said, Salvation is a free gift, but in the end, it will cost you everything. And I can understand what he was talking about. He's given up your life, given up the life that you had before, given up this, given up that. But really, guys and gals, does it compare at all? To what was given for us? When I'm saying we can give up whatever, nothing comes close. Your life, and I would imagine my life changed a bunch when I became a believer, and so did Lori's. I imagine that's true for most of you guys. And we, we, had, fr- we had close friends, people that we were really close to that we're not anymore because we have this difference. We're believers and they're not. They were some of our very best friends. They aren't anymore. 
It put a distance between us and family members in some situations. We were living, we were living the American dream. I was making good money. We just built a huge house. We loved our house. Riley and Nancy helped us build it. It was way more house than the one we have now. It was way nicer than the one we have now. I had a job. I had a degree, which very few people around me had. I was moving ahead very rapidly in the company. I could have gone a long way. But as far as I'm concerned and Lori's concerned, we gave up absolutely nothing. Nothing. Jesus gave it all. The Father. Gave everything. That's how bad our sin is. But it's also a measure of how great the love of God is. It's a measure of His grace. How it can touch. the darkest of us. Transformational. Not sometimes. Not on occasion. Every time. Change people. Different people. Different priorities, different loves, different passions. And the treasures of the world fall to the dust from where they came and where they will always wind up. Worthless, meaningless, 